Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. After two years of combat, Confederate General Robert E. Lee moved his army north. At the centerpiece of what's now known as the Gettysburg Campaign, the Southern officer planned a full-scale invasion of the United States. Although he had tallied numerous victories, it would not be until Lee could persuade Northern voters to reject President Abraham Lincoln in 1864 that his rebellion would truly be a success. After days of foraging and skirmishing on Northern soil, the Army of Northern Virginia accidentally crossed a Union scout party, leading to the largest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere. On this episode, we discuss the Gettysburg Campaign. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the greatest showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. You can visit our Facebook page, The Conversation's Growing Every Day, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. One of the great things about this podcast, at least when I designed it, was that this podcast would always be commercial free. There's nothing that drove me more crazy than to listen to a great podcast that has great flow, a great series. And then it suddenly stops for the host to pitch some, you know, water filter or gold investment uh, that they clearly don't care about and that they obviously have a certain time stamp they have to meet, a 30-second ad, for example. I didn't want to do that. So one of the things I decided to do uh, was to set up an account for donations from listeners to pay for the basic costs of the series. And then and many people contributed, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, and this time... Uh, around this season. One thing I wanted to do differently is give something back. So if you visit our website, wartimepodcast.com, you can download an exclusive pay-only episode of Wartime. Uh, Out of the seasonal range, this is a special, it's about one hour long, on the Confederate flag. I call it everything you need to know about the Confederate flag. It's a hot-button issue, it's related to today's episode, uh, and it's in my very humble opinion, the very finest discussion of the Confederate flag in terms of its history and its meaning that you can find anywhere on the web. It's grounded in history rather than modern politics. The information is is very rich. It's very detailed. I'm very pleased with it. I think it's my best work yet. Just kidding. Um, But it is good. And again, it's only available on the website, wartimepodcast.com. You can purchase it for $2.99, and you have the option to give more if you choose. I'm so grateful for all the contributions we've gotten so far. Uh, check that out. There's a free preview of it on our podcast feed. You might have seen that already. Uh, but visit wartimepodcast.com. Click the logo, which looks great as well. Uh, you can download it now. 
On today's episode, however, uh, we're going to talk about the conflict that gives us the Confederate flag, and more specifically, what is considered to be a major turning point in that conflict, the Gettysburg Campaign. Now, if you listen to this show, one thing you'll know is that I like to crack jokes about people revisiting the same topics over and over again, like, for example, Gettysburg. Odds are, if they make a movie about it, uh, it's been revisited enough that they feel comfortable to do so. But what I want to talk about is not necessarily just the battle itself. And it is an important battle. Three days, the, the high watermark of the Confederate States of America. But I want to talk about the lead-up to the battle and the political consequences of the battle. Because in that, I think you find the real, true, important details. The first part of today's episode, I want to dedicate to... Uh, helping you think about the Civil War and talk about the Civil War, the way that historians think and talk about the Civil War. And you may be familiar with it if you're a, a Civil War buff. This may be something new to you otherwise. But I hope it'll be helpful and it will definitely help us understand the importance of Gettysburg and the campaign a little better. The first thing we need to discuss is the Confederate command itself, specifically Robert E. Lee. What I do not want to do for this episode is give you a blow-by-blow, play-by-play uh, lead-up to July of 1863. What I do want to do is discuss the overarching principles that guided Confederate leadership, specifically Robert E. Lee, throughout the war and allows us to understand why he does what he does in June of 1863. So here's our setup. There's a few things about the Civil War that you need to know from the beginning that I don't think enough people truly understand. And that is, from a logistical standpoint, just how shockingly one-sided, before the war even begins, how shockingly one-sided this conflict appears it will be. I want to take you through some statistics now that I'm not making up. These are true statistics that if you are a person considering secession, in 1860 and 1861 should give you great pause. At the end of this, I'll then convince you why the numbers don't necessarily matter and why, even though this war seems like it should be non-competitive, it'll actually be very competitive. Think about this. In 1861, before the first shot is fired in the American Civil War, the population of the United States of America, that's the North, Union states, is 20 million people. On the inverse, the population of the Confederate States of America, the South, the secessionists, is 9 million people. And that includes slaves. By slaves, of course, people who won't be participating in the, in the conflict. But even more than that, I want you to think about this figure. When you talk about manufacturing in this country, 93% of all weapons manufacturing is done in a northern state. 93%. So what that means, in a broader sense, is that the northerners have more people in their country, so they literally uh, can have a bigger army. Southerners have far less. In all likelihood, the soldiers that southern armies begin with are really all they're going to have throughout the war. Northerners can always draft and recruit more. That's a very troubling sign for the South. 
But let's talk about what I think is more important. The manufacturing advantage. 93% of factories are in the north that manufacture weapons. What that means for the south is, in all likelihood, unless they can gain some support from the outside, whatever guns and bullets and artillery and shells they start out with are very likely to be all they're going to have throughout the war. The North is an industrial economy. It's fueled by enterprising people who go to factories and make a living. The South is an agrarian economy, driven by plantation agriculture. Southerners can grow almost anything. But unless they can figure out how to grow bullets and artillery shells, they're going to be in big trouble. Even more than that, the Southern Army at the beginning of the war has virtually no naval support. While the American Navy, as paltry as it is in the grander scope of world affairs, might as well be the Spanish Armada to them. They can blockade ports. They can make sure that those vital supplies the Confederate States need to import to their nation won't arrive. That's an incredible advantage for the North. Numerically, this tale of the tape does not serve the Confederates very well in terms of being hopeful for success. But now, I'll explain to you, hopefully in a simple way, why none of that matters. And why for Southerners, they have advantages of their own, which are a little more difficult to see. The number one important thing Southerners have on their side is the nature of the war. They're not invading anybody, at least not in the beginning. For them, this is a purely defensive war. If the Union Army wants a fight, they have to come south and do it. Now, traditional military axiom tells us uh, that an invading or attacking army will always suffer more casualties because the defending army is able to take a good position, build walls, build fortifications, and decide where the fight will be held. So when you're charging up a hill, you're usually charging up a hill into a hail of gunfire. You'll lose more men. But even more than that, in a broader sense, Southerners can gain sympathy, I guess you could say, from the outside world. England's going to be watching this. The German states are going to be watching this. France is going to be watching this. And what Southerners can say is, look at these northern tyrants. Abusing us, invading us, moving into our towns and raiding us. We aren't doing this to them. And they're right. In essence, they only need to hold the ground they already have. They don't need to conquer more. So those are huge, tremendous advantages that aren't readily apparent when you just look at the numbers. But even more than that, and this is something historians won't recognize until later, and as the war goes on, you'll begin to see more and more, when the U.S. Army splits, some go north, some go south, many of their finest and best and most capable leaders go south too. So when you study the American Civil War, especially Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, versus Lincoln's army with its many commanders, you'll see that almost every time Lee has a decidedly uh, evident advantage in skills and tactics and understanding. Many people said Robert E. Lee was almost supernatural or psychic in his abilities to determine what his opponents would do before they did them. But he was no such thing. Robert E. Lee, just very clearly, knew these men, he worked with these men, he knew their tendencies, And he took educated guesses. Most of the time it paid off. But not every time. So again, when you look at this, 
the Northern Army has a decided numbers advantage. Anything on paper, mathematically, you can equate to an advantage for the Union Army. But Southerners have their advantages too. And it will take a very capable leader to take advantage of them. And an even more capable leader to recognize them. So what's going on in the war by the time we reach the summer of 1863? Well, if you're Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, it looks pretty bad. Robert E. Lee has just defeated you in 1862 in the end of the year at a battle called Fredericksburg in Virginia. It was so one-sided. Men who were there said this was not a battle. This was, and this is a direct quote, simply murder. Later that spring, Abraham Lincoln was to make sure that this would never happen again. He beefed up his army to take on Lee's ragtag group of rebels just down the road from Fredericksburg in Virginia at a place called Chancellorsville. While Lee was almost outnumbered by two to one, he uses superior tactics and the brilliance of Stonewall Jackson to flank the Union Army and sever it, and gains his most tremendous victory of the war at Chancellorsville. This battle is still studied by military students at the Virginia Military Institute in West Point today for its brilliant use of tactics and its pretty effective risk-taking. Because make no mistake, Robert E. Lee gambled in that battle. So what I'm saying is by uh, May and June of 1863, this is a war that Confederates have to feel really good about and that Union officials have to feel pretty bleak about. And I think this is the brilliance of Robert E. Lee in these campaigns. It's his understanding of the conflict at its very nature, at its very core, that makes him successful. Because he understands it in a way that almost no one else in the Confederate government understands it. And very few people in the North understand it. And that's where I really want to start. Get into the head of Robert E. Lee. Here's how it goes. Lee looks at the numbers from day one. And he knows they are behind the eight ball. Any other general would probably feel like this is a fight that you can't win. But Lee understands history. He understands politics. And he understands the tactics necessary to find victory. What do I mean? Lee knows he could win every battle and still lose the war. He knows what the Union strategy is. We call it the Anaconda Plan. Block off southern ports, make sure the bullets and supplies and guns they have on day one are the only they'll have throughout the war. And like an Anaconda, just restrict them and choke them out. Lee knows the clock is ticking on his rebellion. He knows that eventually the North can just take his army down, chip it away little by little, recruit more, and smash him. So again, Lee knows that if you're going to win this war, it will not be on the battlefield. Lee understands something I share with you guys all the time. War is merely politics by another means. Karl von Clausewitz. War is merely politics by another means. Robert E. Lee will look at the example of another great Virginian, George Washington. And he will see in Washington the textbook example for how you beat overwhelming odds and how you find victory. Lee views Abraham Lincoln and the United States like the British Empire. Remember in the Revolution, the British had way more money, endless supplies, endless troops. The Americans had very little. And things got dark at times. But Washington understood the game. 
If you want to beat the British, you have to convince them. Remember, they were a democracy. You have to convince them this war is not worth fighting anymore. And it's going to be much easier and much cheaper just to let the Americans go. And in 1782, the British Empire saw a major change in London. They saw the voters throw out the conservative warlike class, the hawkish group, the Tories, and replace them with liberal Whigs willing to make peace. And that's how America won its freedom. It convinced the British public this was not worth it anymore. And that's what Robert E. Lee wants to do. Lee knows, again, he could win every battle in the war and still end up losing. They'd be what we call Pyrrhic victories. So in his mind, there is a deadline here, and it's very clearly marked. It's the 1864 presidential elections in the North. In 1864, Lee knows Abraham Lincoln will have to go up for re-election. And he will be running on a platform that says, we should continue this war, we can win, I need more time to beat the Southern rebels. But Lee believes if he can convince people that that is a pipe dream, that that is impossible, that that will never happen, that this civil war is just not worth it, that Northerners will vote Lincoln out and replace him with a Democrat who very likely will come with an opposing message of let's just make peace with the South. Lee knows the end game of this war is not on the battlefield, it's in the voting booth. You need to convince people in the North they can't win. And that's how you win your freedom. So that's Lee's guiding principle throughout the war. But 1864 is the year. He knows if he doesn't do it then, if Lincoln does get reelected, it's probably over. There's certain tactics you can do to prolong the war, but it's probably finished. Now, what did Lee want from it? Historians debate it. Did he want the Confederates to be a free and independent nation? Maybe. Most say he probably would have accepted just a concession from the North that slavery can stay in place. But no matter what, make no mistake, this war is not won on the battlefield. It's in the voting booth. Lee understands it better than anybody else. If you don't get that point, none of the rest of the story is going to make sense. But I think it's a great place to jump into it. So what's our setup? June of 1863. Robert E. Lee has just had what many are calling the greatest victory he may ever have, Chancellorsville. Look it up. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. Brilliant maneuver. Uh, a pitch for the angels, so to speak. But the same problems are haunting him. And those problems are many, and they are grievous. Number one, most of this fighting of the war, the vast majority of it, with the exception of uh, a Maryland battle, Antietam, in 1862, most of this fighting has been where? Not the North, in the South. It's been in Virginia. It's been in Tennessee. It's been in the Carolinas. This is not a war that is playing out well for the South logistically. Armies need to eat, both North and South. So they have to pillage and plunder farms to do so. Union armies are rampaging across the South, especially in Virginia, eating up farmers' harvests. These giant machines need to be fed. Lee realizes this is hurting Virginia in many ways, not just the army, because there's not enough food, but definitely the people. He also remembers, and again, I'll belabor this point a lot, to win this war, it's political. Convince the North it can't be won. 
He also knows that in the mind of the average Yankee, in the mind of the average Northerner, that this war is not something they fear. This war is something that happens hundreds of miles away, sometimes more, in the American South. They have no fear in the North that they're going to wake up one day, look out their back door, and see a Southern army rampaging through their fields, burning their homes, pillaging and plundering their town. They think that's not going to happen. In the South, that's an everyday occurrence. So Lee gets the big picture. That's why I think there's so much value in studying his tactics. But again, he gets back to the 1864 elections. You can't convince Northerners, really convince Northerners, that this war is a threat unless you take the war to them. Lee's proposing something radical here in June of 1863, and it is a full-scale invasion of the United States of America, a full-scale invasion of the northern states. He tried this in 1862 by moving into Maryland. There was some espionage involved. Lee's battle plans were revealed prematurely. George B. McClellan's Army of the Potomac met him near Sharpsburg, Maryland. There was a massive battle. Antietam, still the single bloodiest day in U.S. history. Uh, more than 22,000 casualties in one day. It backfired on Lee, because the element of surprise wasn't there. Now, after Chancellorsville, his greatest victory, the same problems are plaguing him. His army's not getting any bigger. It's not getting more supplies. He has to act now. And what better than the summer of 63, the elections in November of 64? So he looks at a map, and he sees the most obvious target available. Because Maryland still had some Southern sympathy. It was, in fact, very pro-Southern. So much so they had to declare martial law to keep the rebels in the Northern Column. But Pennsylvania was the key. So why Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania was a little bit of everything. A place the Southerners may really do well. And we can talk about what was so great about Pennsylvania. Number one was the farm country. Pennsylvania was the breadbasket of the Union effort. Massive fields, farms everywhere, uh, peach orchards, apple orchards, fields of grain, fields of corn, livestock beyond imagine. And this is the kind of place where Southerners could go and inflict a little bit of revenge. They could eat, in fact, they could feast on the farmlands of Pennsylvania while at the same time allowing the fields of Virginia to replenish themselves from now going on uh, two years of war. So Pennsylvania was a nice place for that. Number two, believe it or not, in Pennsylvania, there was a large amount of Confederate sympathizers. Especially, if you can visualize a map of the state, it's like a big rectangle on its side. Especially in the south-central part of the state. You get into the south-central part of the state, you begin to see one of these border areas. Uh, Maryland is very close. A lot of uh, Pennsylvanians do business with Marylanders. A lot of them are very conservative. And Lee believes when he rolls into that area, he may even be welcomed as a hero. And sometimes he's right. So it might not be like enemy territory necessarily for him. That's a nice plus. But number three, on top of all else... Pennsylvania has some really intensely high-value targets that the Confederacy could really benefit from destroying. And we can talk about those. 
Number one is the city of Harrisburg, the capital. Harrisburg basically sits right in the middle of the state, south-central PA. Harrisburg is a great town. Its best days may be behind it, and I go there a lot. But in 1863, Harrisburg was sort of the railroad center of the Union effort. Almost every major railroad in the north uh, came into Harrisburg and out the other side. So if you could capture that, you could virtually shut down northern railway communication, at least temporarily, which is a big advantage. I always say the Civil War is about rivers and railroads. If you had a map of the United States with no towns listed and no cities, only rivers and railroads, you could look at where they intersect. And you could probably guess that a Civil War battle took place at or near there. That's how important they are. It's not always true, but rivers and railroads are everything in the Civil War. No place better than Pennsylvania's capital of Harrisburg. But there are even more targets than that. The city of Philadelphia, even in 1863, was an enormous city and very symbolic. The United States Constitution was written and signed there. The United States Declaration of Independence was written and signed there. The United States Articles of Confederation were written and signed there. Those documents and those articles, even though the, the, the Southern Confederates are rebelling against the United States, are still held dear to them. Um, so to capture that city would be enormously symbolic of a major sea change coming. Philadelphia, important target strategically as far as supplies and logistics, not as big. A third target that's very compelling was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh is nowhere near central PA. If you're driving, it's about three and a half hours west. But if you could capture Pittsburgh, then you have taken away the number one munitions-producing city in the north. We all know the story of Pittsburgh, a major manufacturing hub of all sorts of things. When the Civil War came around, they stopped manufacturing those other things and started making weapons. The Allegheny Arsenal in what is today Lawrenceville in Pittsburgh. Not there anymore. Blew up. The worst civilian disaster of the war, by the way. That was one of these uh, hallmark places. Now, it was gone by the time of uh, Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania. It blew up in 1862, but there were others like it. So capturing Pittsburgh was a very real threat. And believe it or not, when Robert E. Lee's army moved into Pennsylvania initially, the city of Pittsburgh shut down. For three days, commerce stopped in Pittsburgh, which is huge. And they actually built like 35 or so earthen forts all around the city. They were fully prepared for a Confederate army to march into that city. They didn't know any more than we know what's going to happen tomorrow. As it turns out, that wouldn't happen. There's other parts of Pennsylvania that are attractive. Uh, if you went into uh, eastern Pennsylvania, you would find enormous coal fields, anthracite coal. And again, this was really what powered the Union war effort. It powered their mills, powered their trains. Lee actually had a plan to go into those coal mines and set off explosives. And if he did that, that coal would probably still be burning underground today. So there was nothing but possibility for Robert E. Lee to invade Pennsylvania. And as fate would have it, none of those targets would ever be hit. So let's talk about why. One of the great things about the Civil War is that you can spend all the time in the world dealing with the minutiae of the armies. 
And I'm not going to put you through that. But I will give you a quick run through of how an army set up and what it looks like. At the very top, you have Robert E. Lee, the general. And beneath him, the army's cut into two pieces. For most of the war to that point. One half of the army was controlled by a general named James Longstreet. The other half of the army was controlled by a general named Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jonathan Jackson. And that worked really well for Lee. Won him victories at Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg, and so on. But at Chancellorsville, one of the amazing things that happens is that Stonewall Jackson dies. And what Lee realizes is, he can no longer split his army into two, because no one general can ever fill the shoes of Jackson to control that many people. Literally 35,000 people. So Lee changes the game. Each of those two parts of the army we call a core. He switches from a two-core army to a three-core army. And that's more manageable. James Longstreet keeps his core. Stonewall Jacksons are split into half. One is given to a man named Ambrose Powell Hill, A.P. Hill, red hair, red beard. And the other is given to a man named Richard Yule, uh, Old Baldy, they called him. Uh, and that's the new Army of Northern Virginia. That's the army that will invade Pennsylvania. Whenever they invade Pennsylvania, they only have a few options to do so. And that is because the interstate highway system that we know today doesn't exist. The options they have are mountain passes. And there's only a few mountain passes they can use, and one of the best ones uh, is right in the middle of the state. So they go through the Blue Ridge Mountains, they go past South Mountain, and again, there they are in south-central Pennsylvania. And just as Lee expected, he had a lot of northern support in that area. That's a heavily democratic area, conservative area. He's welcomed in some places. And he tells his army to break off into three parts and just go feast. Because so far, the Union Army doesn't know where they are. But he tells his men very famously, if you pillage a farm, if you plunder a harvest, we're not animals, we're not like those Yankees. He says, leave people IOUs. Tell them we'll pay them back for whatever we take. So this southern sort of gentleman image was something Lee wanted to perpetuate. It's not like you can look at that and say, oh, what, what gentlemen the Confederates were. You know, these were slave owners. Uh, but Lee knew people thought that way. This was PR. And even if he had no intention of paying them back, uh, he asked them to leave that behind. This also came at a time whenever in the South, the Union Army just destroyed, literally burned down a town in Georgia uh, for almost no reason, so to speak. Uh, it was like a Viking raid, people called it. Uh, and it made a stark political contrast. And never take the political optics out of this. Lee knows exactly what he's looking at. But for the better part of two weeks, Lee's army split, spread throughout south-central Pennsylvania, disconnected, uh, moving on different positions. Now, one of the positions Lee's army does move on is Harrisburg. And they get pretty close. Problem is, if you want to capture Harrisburg from their entry point to the state, you have to cross a pretty big river. Harrisburg sits on the west bank of the Susquehanna River. Lee's men are on the east bank of the Susquehanna River. There's one bridge that gets you across there, called the Columbia-Wrightsville Bridge. It was the longest covered bridge on the planet. And Lee's army knows if he wants to capture that capital city, he very well could have done so. 
Problem is, there's a brave stand by volunteers uh, on the eastern shore of the covered bridge. The Confederates can't get across. The Union uh, volunteers actually burn the bridge down. The pylons are still there. I did an episode on it for my series for the Pennsylvania Cable Network, uh, Battlefield, Pennsylvania. And we go there and we see it, and it's a really powerful place. But that was the end of that. That made it very clear Lee was not crossing the Susquehanna. And he was not moving on Harrisburg, but he was that close. What Lee doesn't understand, and what he'll never know, and what could have radically changed the history of this country, was where the Union Army was at the time. You see, the way armies gather intelligence in the 19th century is not with walkie-talkies and radio. Uh, And there were telegraphs, but that was very difficult to deal with because armies were always on the move was through their cavalry. A cavalry uh, soldier is a soldier on horseback. And cavalry is very effective in a battle, but they're also the primary intelligence-gathering wing of these armies. And Lee's favorite and most successful cavalry commander was a man named James Ewell Brown Stewart, Jeb Stewart. And Jeb never let Lee down. He always let him know, because they can move so quickly, where the enemy was at all times. Well, he had no updates from Jeb Stewart. So Lee believed he was safe. What Lee didn't know was that Jeb Stewart was effectively cut off from the army. And there's a lot of debate here whether he was trying to do something uh, intentionally to take a risk or whether it just worked out that he was cut off. But whatever the case, Lee doesn't know where the enemy army is. What he also doesn't know is that the Union army is headed right his way. Now remember Lee's army is split into three places. These are big armies, thousands of men. And communication's very, very poor. So Lee has to find a place where these armies can come together, regroup, and move as one. Maybe move on Philadelphia. Maybe move on Harrisburg again. Maybe move on Pittsburgh. Who knows? And he sees one town that we always describe as a sleepy little town in south-central Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. Gettysburg is a town of less than 4,000 people. There is absolutely nothing special about it. There's a Lutheran theological seminary in the town. There's a college in the town. There's not much to speak of. But the great thing it does have is a giant road network. It has something like nine roads leaving the town square. And they go in all directions, north, south, east, and west. So Lee believes if he can rally all of his men at or near Gettysburg... He can then make his move easily and effectively toward any number of targets, maybe even Washington, D.C. And that's where things slip out of his control. On July 1st, 1863, uh, some of Lee's men go toward Gettysburg. And by the way, they had already captured the city during this uh, previous two weeks of sort of foraging, and there wasn't much there, so they didn't care about it. Uh, So the Battle of Gettysburg we're about to talk about is actually the second Battle of Gettysburg. First one wasn't much to speak of. But a part of Lee's army accidentally collides with an intelligence-gathering wing, a cavalry wing, uh, of the Union Army. It's what we call a meeting engagement. A lot of battles in the Civil War take place by choice. We're going to fight here. And by the way, Lee's almost always there first, and he almost takes the best position. But this time, they just bumped into each other. Little did they know that bumping into each other would turn into the largest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere, and easily the largest battle of the war. But they started to fight, just northwest of the town. 
As the fighting continued on July 1st, day one of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union Army found as they moved into the town, fighting house to house, guerrilla combat, that there was a very, um, a very choice piece of ground to the southeast of the town. Locals called Cemetery Hill. It was high ground. There wasn't a lot of great ground here, but it was high ground. And in almost every other battle they met, Lee and the Southerners always picked the high ground. And they always made the Northern armies fight from behind. On July 1st, 1863, the table was turned. The Union army would occupy just southeast of the town what was called Cemetery Hill. And they'd very famously spread their line out into something of a fish hook. And there they'd wait. At the northern end of the fish hook was the cemetery and a place called Culp's Hill. At the southern end was a small mountain, really hill, called Little Round Top. And the Union Army basically told the Southerners, here we are, come and get us. Lee was furious about this. Because one, he was reacting to circumstances rather than dictating circumstances. His intelligence had failed him. And two, he had to fight from behind. He didn't have the high ground. He didn't pick where he wanted to fight. He wasn't used to that. Lee would line up about a mile across. Uh, Lee would line up directly parallel to Cemetery Ridge at a place called Seminary Ridge. A long stretch uh, with the northern tip being the Lutheran Theological Seminary. And this is the end of day one of the Battle of Gettysburg. Day two begins, and Lee begins his great attack. Lee believes if he can break through the Union line, D.C. is his. It's just their south. Today, maybe an hour's drive. Of course, with traffic, it's more like ten. But Lee will make the decision to attack the flanks of the line, the very northern tip and the very southern tip, to hope to collapse them. And these are now the stuff of legend. The battle at Culp's Hill in the north goes well into the nighttime. July 2nd, 1863. Lee almost breaks through. He doesn't. The very southern tip, immortalized in the book The Killer Angels and the movie Gettysburg, the Battle at Little Round Top. A group of men, New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, hold off an assault of Texans and Alabamians for hours. If they fail, that's the end. The line collapses, but they hold. Joshua Chamberlain, a man from Maine, was very famously the man on the ground in charge on Little Round Top. But his boss was a guy named Strong Vincent from Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was shot and killed. He may be the real hero of Little Round Top. The reality was the battle was filled with heroes. Ask anyone what side they're on, they're all heroes. But the attack fails. The day two attack fails. And it makes Lee reconsider things. Lee begins to have heart palpitations, what we call angina. He's laid out for most of day two and day three. And from day two to day three, he makes a fateful decision. And that decision is, he spent so much time and energy on the second day of Gettysburg attacking the end of the line, that means the middle must be weak now. Because the likely result would be men from the middle were taken out to the sides to reinforce them. And what Lee planned was a straight-on, full-on assault of the center of the line to break through. Many people in his command, including James Longstreet, believed this was a bad idea. But it was his orders, and they went along with it. The entire morning of July 3rd, 1863, 
cannon and artillery bombarded the center of the Union line. The idea was this will soften them up for the inevitable charge. It was the largest cannonade and remains the largest cannonade in the history of the Western Hemisphere. And Lee will call upon three generals to then take their men and march about a mile through open field directly into the heart of the Union line. We call this Pickett's Charge. And it's too bad for George Pickett. He was just one of the generals who were chosen to lead this. The other one was named Pettigrew. And the third was Trimble. Again, history is a cruel thing. This most fateful of charges will forever be saddled on the shoulders of George Pickett, even though he was ordered to do so by James Longstreet, who was ordered to do so by Robert E. Lee. I think the blame should fall with Lee. That's my opinion. But it's a disaster. The Union Army obliterates the Confederates as they march. This is what we call the high water mark of the Confederacy. It's the most northern point, as they say, the army ever went. Now, there was a battle in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is even farther north than that a few days earlier, but we don't want to mess with the legend, right? They like the sound of the high water mark of the Confederacy. But that's the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. And I made it simple, and we talked about it quickly, because, quite frankly, you can find information on the Battle of Gettysburg almost anywhere, and probably better than what I gave you. What I want you to understand when this Union Army of 90,000 and this Confederate Army of 75,000 met in Pennsylvania, are the real basics, the why. I mean, battles are great. Battles are important. But unless you can put the battle in perspective, unless you can understand the politics that surround it, then they're really meaningless. They make very little sense. Battles happen all the time, as we've seen this season. But you have to keep them in context. Then they take on a whole new life of their own. At the end of this battle, you have 30,000 Yankees killed or wounded. You have almost the same number of Southerners, 27,000 killed or wounded. This is really the first time Robert E. Lee, and not the last, is defeated on the field of battle. He's had previous losses before he was in full command, but in terms of the Lee of legend, the Lee at the helm of the Army of Northern Virginia, this is as good as it gets. This is a major victory for the Union. It shows that Lee can finally be defeated. Now, I'd love to tell you that Abraham Lincoln wins re-election because of this battle, but the fact of the matter is, in politics, a week is a year, and a year is a millennium. By the time you get to November of 1864, Gettysburg is long forgotten. The war has continued. It's gotten to be brutal. It's gotten to be terrible. Lincoln needs a little more help, and he gets it in the form of Ulysses S. Grant, and a man named William Tecumseh Sherman. If you're in Georgia, you know that name well. Maybe another episode awaits us. But Lincoln does win re-election. And when Lincoln wins re-election, for him, that's the ball game. Yeah, the war will continue, but not much longer. Robert E. Lee knows it as well. Lee's surrender comes at a time when most Southerners had had enough. Many people are telling Lee we should take to the mountains and hills, fight a guerrilla war, an insurgent war. Make this war last. Make it last longer and make it more terrible. But I think Lee's ultimate credit should be that he sees that the end is near. Lee's seen that 700,000 Americans have been killed. That is 2% of the total population. If we lost 2% of our total population today, it would be the equivalent of 7 million people. That's horrific. 
That's unbelievable. And remember, these are Americans killing Americans. So the surrender of Robert E. Lee in 1865 is a, an important moment in American history. But make no mistake, the first crack in the armor, the first chink in the armor, and the first time when it seems like victory may be out of reach comes on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at Gettysburg. If you want to know more about the Civil War, particularly the Confederate flag, and again, dare I say, you can download the very best discussion of the Confederate flag in terms of history in an unbiased way on that podcast. Visit wartimepodcast.com. Give to the show. It means the world to me. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.